Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Heather Ash Amara, who is author of Warrior Goddess Training, Become the Woman You Are Meant to Be. Today we will discuss applying warrior goddess principles to your personal and business life. A leader in mindfulness, empowerment, and shamanism, Heather Ash is also the author of The Toltec Path to Transformation and Embracing the Four Elements of Change. The heart of her teachings stems from her long Toltec apprenticeship and teaching partnership with Miguel Ruiz, who is author of The Four Agreements. Over the past 15 years, she has taught workshops and apprenticeships and trained teachers. She now travels the world working with women to integrate the feminine wisdom of the ancients into their modern lives. Heather Ash, welcome. Thanks so much, Elena. It's good to be here. This is a topic that might perhaps at first glance seem like, well, what does this have to do with business and what does this have to do with business executives and an audience that is interested in maximizing their efforts in a business environment, but everything is connected, right? Absolutely. And we're in business and at home. There's a lot of overlap, and there's also a lot of ways as women that we need to start to educate ourselves around how to be as effective and present as possible, both at work and at our homes. There are divisions, of course. There are lines that things that we leave at home when we go to work and vice versa. But at the end of the day, all of the principles that rule our life, all of our life, they're connected because we are connected. What do we, what do we mean when we say a warrior goddess? For me, a warrior goddess is a woman that is learning about herself and is bringing her attention and her focus to these two qualities that are so important for women. And one is the warrior energy, which is focus, clarity, commitment. It's that 100% yes, I'm in. And a lot of women are familiar with that in business. It works really well in business. But it also has some detriment for women because sometimes if we have an over- abundance or an excess of warrior energy, we can actually override ourselves, get really dogmatic, not take care of our bodies. And so we also want to bring in the goddess energy, and that's about receptivity, openness, creativity, exploration. There's many different manifestations around the world of different goddesses. So for me, the goddess energy also reminds us that as women, we're each unique, as all humans are each unique, and that it's incredibly valuable for us and for everyone around us for us to bring that unique feminine essence that we have into our work and honor all different expressions of femaleness in the world. Tell us a little bit more about that. Heather Ash, what do you mean in your title you say become the woman you are meant to be? What do you mean by that? Many of us are raised with an image of perfection of who we should be. 
And we take on this image of perfection from our peers, from our parents, from our church. We then also create one around what it means to be a working woman or what it means to be in a particular type of business. So we have an ideal in our head of who we should be. And what I've seen is that that can cause a lot of harm because what we do as women is it's almost like we're walking around the world with this image of perfection, this being we think we're supposed to be standing next to us. And instead of really living in our own bodies and being present with what's arising in our life, we're constantly comparing ourselves to this woman that we think we're supposed to be. And we often are, judge ourselves fiercely. And I think that's one of the biggest detriments that women have right now is the amount of judgment and comparison that we create for ourselves, the ways we judge ourselves, the ways we judge others, and how much we're comparing to who we think we should be. So this idea of becoming the woman you are meant to be is about letting go of trying to be something else, of trying to be perfect, of trying to fit into a role that you think you should, and instead turning to face yourself and to say, hi, I want to get to know who you are, what your gifts are, what you have to share. And so it's really about becoming intimate with yourself. And through that journey, you become the woman you are meant to be, which is your authentic expression of you. And at both work and in the home, when we become who we really are, we're much more present, we're much more creative, we're much happier. And all of that leads to us being more effective and being able to see a bigger picture and act from our heart rather than from what we think is supposed to be happening. That sounds like a lifelong journey, identifying who you're meant to be. Absolutely. It's definitely not a five minutes over lunch process. It's definitely a, an ongoing learning and exploration. And, you know, just like for women that have children, you know that as your children grow up, you think you know them, and then they shift and they change. And it's always a new experience to get to know who they are now. And it's really the same thing with ourselves, that we grow and mature and change. And so over time, we want to stay in relationship with who we are now, not who we were in the past or who we think we should be. How do you know? There's a, a feeling sense of peace. When we're aligned with ourselves, we're not thinking and trying to figure out how should I be in the world. We simply are. And so there's this sense of being connected, of feeling full, of feeling open-hearted, and a lot of the self-judgment and self-worth issues that plague so many women dissipate. So our confidence comes up. We feel, even when we make mistakes, I think one of the biggest hallmarks of knowing that you've stepped into that sense of yourself is that you can make a mistake and there isn't judgment, there isn't a huge drama. There's simply, okay, made a mistake. Let me figure out how I'm going to take my next step, what needs to happen. And there's creativity that arises rather than judgment. 
a sense of confidence, a sense of freedom, and perhaps a license to make mistakes. Am I hearing correctly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's how we grow is through making mistakes, learning from them, trying again. And again, I see that many women, I know I used to be this way if I felt like it was not okay to make a mistake. And so because of that, I would hold myself back because I was trying so hard to do it right. And what I found as I've taken these principles and started to integrate them in my life is that I'm much more willing to show up and bring myself fully forward into all different types of situations because I know if I make a mistake that I'll correct it and that it doesn't have anything to do with my self-worth. And that's something that I've really noticed the difference between women and men, that men are much more, feel much more free to make mistakes than women do. So this is something that we, I feel we get to be in a new relationship with ourselves of giving ourselves permission to not do it perfectly, to try things out, to explore, to learn as we go along. How is it that you were inspired to write the Warrior Goddess books? Did you wake up one morning and decide this is what I'm meant to be? I actually started writing my first book when I was seven years old. And I have a very clear memory of pulling out a pad of paper and getting a pen and sitting down and starting to write a book. And I got about a page in and I thought to myself, huh, I don't think I have enough experience to write a book yet. So I went out and lived my life. And when I was about 30, I had been studying with Don Miguel Ruiz, the author of The Four Agreements, for many years. And I realized one day that I had something to say. I felt like I from my study and then my integrating the teachings that I saw something that I wanted to write about. And that was my first book, Toltec Path of Transformation. And that book was really, it came out of watching myself and my peers and the people that I was working with, that I was coaching and teaching, go towards making a change in their lives, having an idea of something they wanted to shift start to make the change, and then backtrack. And I saw this happen over and over again. And I got really curious about why is it so hard to make change that's sustainable, that sticks over time. And so that was my question. That was the, the main question of the book, is how do we create internal change and how do we respond more gracefully to external change? And that book then... I work with this idea that each of us creates structures inside of ourselves, roles that we take on, ideas of who we think we're supposed to be, different things that we learn from the environment around us growing up that don't necessarily serve us or align with us, but are who we think we're supposed to be. And that when we go to make a change, what we're doing, and we get the bright idea, I want to shift this. I want to be more present in my life. I want to not take things as personally as I do. I want to ask for a raise, whatever it is that we're wanting to shift in our life. Then what happens is we start taking apart those old structures. 
And if you don't have a new structure to replace it with, if you don't have an idea of where you want to go, then what can happen is as we start to dismantle the old structures, what's known of who we have known ourselves to be, then it can start feeling unstable. It's like if you can imagine having a structure and you start just pulling the middle part of it apart, this whole thing gets rickety and wobbly. And this often happens when we go to make change because we don't know where we're going yet. And so often we go back to what's familiar. So it's really important as we're making change in our lives to hold ourselves with compassion and see the bigger picture and know that it might feel wobbly as we're making the shift and that that's actually a normal part of transformation. And then warrior goddess training came after that from my years of working with women and starting to notice that women have some very specific issues and places to work on because of how we've been raised. And so I was really passionate about helping women to find their voice, helping women to step into their power and to let go of the places that we sabotage ourselves and we try and, that we keep ourselves small without even realizing it. So I was very happy to be able to put many different lessons into that warrior, the first warrior goddess training book. What are those many ways that we make ourselves little? One way that's really easy to see is that we have a tendency to apologize excessively without even realizing that we're apologizing. So many women that I know, somebody steps on their feet and they say, oh, I'm sorry. Or there's a habit often that we have around apologizing. And when I started studying this, and really watching it in myself and watching it in my students, what I noticed is that if you go deeper, often what we're doing is we're actually apologizing for being, for taking up space. And again, this is unconscious. And we have to remember that it was only about a little bit over a 100 years ago in the United States that women were given the right to vote. So if we think about our great-grandmother's experience, or probably even our grandmother's experience, there was really only one role for women, and that role was to get married and have kids. You know, obviously there were women that did other types of work, but the majority of women, the expectation was that your one job was to raise children. And so it's only been two generations, two or three generations, that women have started coming really fully into the workforce and especially into leadership roles. And so while we have a lot of external freedoms of choosing where we get to work, deciding who we want to partner with, and being able to vote, there's a lot of external freedom for women. But what I've seen is that internally we're still catching up. We don't often have as much internal freedom. We're still chained to the ideas of who we should be. And there's still a lot we're carrying forward around feeling like we're not safe, keeping our voice quiet. And there's a lot of unconscious bias within ourselves and also in the people around us that we're still working with. Because, again, this change that we're in as women of being able 
to be in the world as much as we are, it's still fairly new. So I find it really helpful for us to remember that. It helps put things in context in a larger way. Someone said to me the other day that women sometimes are ultra-conservative, that oftentimes some of the loudest voices toward this concept of keeping women little comes from other women. Has that been your experience? Unfortunately, I have seen that to be true, that we're often trained to compete very seriously against each other. And there can be a a way that women are much crueler to each other than men would be. So that is an unfortunate truth. And we, as women, that makes it even more important for us to find good female allies and also be good female allies, that we can change that pattern by really supporting other women in our field, mentoring women and recognizing that there are, there is a tendency to compete and that we be mindful of places that we might be doing that without realizing it and adjust our behaviors accordingly. You talked a moment ago about this idea, this historic idea that lingers about women's role being child bearers. In today's society, there's a large percentage of the population that don't have any children. Is there any evidence that those women see themselves any differently than the women who have chosen to have children and a career? It's a great question. And just from talking to different women, so I don't have statistics on this, although the statistics of the amount of unmarried women without children is like at its at its highest point right now, I think, than it's ever been, which is interesting. From talking with with women, what I've seen is that there is a little bit of a feeling sense of not, what's the right word, that there's a, a feeling sense of not being complete with some women that don't have children or that they didn't do something that they were supposed to. And this is even women that I've talked to that are very happy with their lives, but they still have a sense of they didn't fulfill their potential. And again, they're happy, they're content with their lives, and yet there's still this old place, not from the head, not from their experience, but from a feeling sense. So it's just something for, for us to be aware of and to really claim what I, what I think is true is that that's not just women that don't have kids. It's probably most women that we feel like something's missing. And so that's something for each of us to explore if that's true. Is there something in your life that you feel like you're missing or that you didn't do? And how to really show up in the life that you have now and let go of the past or what could have been. I wonder if those same feelings of something is missing are mirrored for men who don't have children. I wonder. I don't think so. 
And I know I travel all over the world, and often one of the first questions I'm asked is, do you have kids? And when I say no, the response, especially when I'm overseas, is people are somewhat horrified. How can you not have children? And how can you not have a husband? And then curious, like, who are you that you can be happy, as I see that you are, and not have kids? And... I think that it's true in the in the states I've seen this that that question doesn't get asked of men as much. What men are asked is what do you do? There's a different focus for men than women. Interesting. There's a Harvard study I think from December of last year that talks about gender bias. Have you heard of it? I think there were 200,000 participants. Yes. It seems to focus on gender bias, which is something that you mentioned uh, or that we've been discussing, really. What do you think in terms of the study and what you have experienced and uh, your opinion? That study was an online study, and they found that out of the 200,000 participants, that 76% of the people, and this was both men and women, felt that men were better suited for careers and women were better suited as homemakers. So it's obviously quite wide scale, three-quarters of the people. And it shows us the implicit behavior that we don't even realize that we have that we believe that women aren't as suited in careers. And that shows up all over the place. And so, you know, another way to look at it is that right now of the Fortune 500 companies, 29 companies are run by women. That's it, 29 out of 500. So as we get up into higher leadership, it's incredibly skewed around men's leadership versus women's leadership. And yet, men and women both agree that women are better leaders. So it shows us that there is this gender bias happening, and it's an unconscious bias that's by both women and men. So it's not just women. It's not just men that are keeping women from being leaders. It's also we ourselves, our own unconscious biases, are keeping us from rising within organizations. So to really the key is around education. It's around educating ourselves. It's about asking men to help. Because it's, it's really vital that men are part of changing gender inequality. They play a really important key. And for women, again, to support each other in leadership, in growing our leadership capacity and in advocating for ourselves. Do you think that part of the issue is that there's a cycle because it's more difficult, because there is a bias against women, it's more difficult for women to advance and therefore they choose a path of least resistance and either go and be become homemakers or go and start their own business. There are a lot of women who are entrepreneurs. Do you think that these two things are 
fostering the continuation of the cycle. Absolutely. I do think that's true. And it's wonderful that women are starting their own businesses. That's fabulous. And it's happening at an incredibly high rate right now. And I feel like until we start to address higher levels of leadership and finding ways to get women into being CEOs of the large, large companies, that we still have a lot of work ahead of us. And it's true that often women, when they're in organizations, that they're struggling, that they're finding that they keep hitting a wall in different situations. It's very easy to just say, okay, this is not worth it. Let me go someplace where it's easier. And so unfortunately, that keeps us then from advancing. And there was a article that I read that was really fascinating to me because I've talked to quite a few people now about this idea of unconscious bias. And sometimes the response is, well, that's not happening now. There's laws in place that women are equal. That unconscious bias isn't happening. And I read a really recent experience that um, a man and a woman had that were co-workers in the tech industry. And inadvertently one day their email addresses got switched so she was answering as him and he was answering as her and they decided to just continue doing that for the next two weeks so they ran an experiment so at the end of those two weeks where he had been responding as her and she had been responding as him and again they're peers they're in exactly the same level doing the same work what he said at the end is that it was incredible he had no idea how difficult it was to be a woman in business because clients that were usually super easy, that were very approachable to him, that were, there was a lot of rapport, suddenly became hostile, suddenly became resistant when they thought he was a her. And the woman said that she had the best two weeks of her life. And this was, this happened last year. So we're still really dealing with people not recognizing that you see, even just seeing a female name, that we can make assumptions about what that means, and we're still dealing with that as women. So it's really important to support, to find support, to find allies and mentors that can help us to stay steady through the challenges, the extra challenges that women have in business. Because the truth is, business is challenging as it is. And then you add in unconscious bias. And it means that we need even more support in our work environment. Some women say that in addition to the official bias like the one in the example that you just shared with us, there is informal bias where it is not socially acceptable for women to do things, to be in situations that men can be in at senior levels where you are expected to bring in business to the corporation. Men are allowed to participate in social activities, expected to do socially awkward, sometimes ethically questionable things that women are not even privy to. Those doors don't even open for them. What have you heard about that? That that's really true, that there's a whole 
this kind of men's club, I shouldn't say kind of, that there is a, a men's club mentality. And again, if we look at that women haven't been involved in business in the way that we are now for very long, there's still a lot of cliques of men that are these coming together of doing things that only men would do with each other. And because of that, then women aren't allowed into the club, basically. And if they are allowed into the club, it's incredibly awkward. So it's something, this is part of why we need to really educate men and start to find men that are allies that can help to open up those old systems that aren't supportive any longer of a diverse population, that the world is changing and that we need to make room. And it's, it's just the same thing with, with, let's say, segregated universities or universities that were only for women or only for men or that was, were segregated by race. It's an old concept that needs to be changed. And it's changed in many other, and it's changed in many, many different areas of the world. And yet within business, I think business is one of the slowest places that those old type of groups, segregated groups, are still around. And of course, it's hard for those to change. When you're in the group, you don't want to open the group up. But it's time. We need to begin to recognize that business is no longer a male-dominated place that systems need to change, especially at the upper levels, to include everybody. Oftentimes, you hear men say that women don't make themselves clear this in personal relationships and also in the business environment, I've heard, that they expect the men to figure out what it is that they want out of a relationship, out of a situation, that women have an expectation that if the guy is interested enough, he will make it his business to guess what it is that she's thinking what it is that she wants out of the relationship or the transaction or the negotiation because the women themselves are not willing to be explicit about what they want. Have you seen evidence of this in your traveling? Absolutely. And one of the main ways that we hold this as women is that there's a belief that it's not okay for us to speak up that we can't really use our voice, that it's not okay to be bold. So if you think about the languaging, there's, it's that you have to be ladylike, that you have to be nice. And because of this, instead of stating what we want or what we need or what's, what we're really thinking, many women want to just have other people figure it out or to be more indirect in their communication. And so as women, it's someplace that we get to rectify inside of ourselves and to start to look as individuals at where in my life am I not being clear in my communication? Where are the places that I'm expecting someone else to read my mind or think they should read my mind? 
at work and at home? And where are the places that I'm trying to be nice or to be pleasant and not use my voice? That I can begin to practice stepping in and using my voice. Now, and it's, it's challenging for women because there's been studies done now around negotiating that in business, if women negotiate for themselves, they're seen as rude. And there's been studies done of this, of that men negotiating versus women negotiating. There's a completely different perception. It's expected that men are going to negotiate, whereas if a woman negotiates, then she's seen as being aggressive. And so the to be aware that we have these fears inside of us, perhaps, of standing up. And then there's also the reflection, there can also be the reflection back of that's not okay for you to do. So we need to remember that we are valuable, that our voice is incredibly important, and that negotiating for ourselves, regardless of how other people perceive it, is our right as women. And we don't have to be unkind to do it. And we also don't need to equate being nice and kind with being silent. Someone mentioned to me that if you look at the personal relationship, which oftentimes is the foundation that many women start with in their interactions in the business environment, they model their business behavior on their personal behavior, that even that cycle starts at a point of disadvantage when the woman becomes engaged because the man chooses the engagement ring most of the time without consulting his bride-to-be. Have you heard this concept before? Yes, and there are so many different little places like that throughout our lives where we don't recognize that some of the cultural practices that we have set us up to take away choice. And again, it's so part of what we do, it's hard to even see it. So that's a very good example of something that is tradition but what it's saying is I know what you like I know what's best for you and as women we can continue to explore different ways in our relationships of setting of creating equality you know another example is it's often very strongly believed that women should be the one that do the laundry and clean up. And I've, I've read studies and talked to countless women who even men that are very open-minded, very enlightened, very supportive, will still fall into the habit of believing or of, of acting out that the woman should be the one that cleans the house. Even a woman who's working full-time and taking care of the kids there isn't equality in the home. And that takes education. So, and women standing up and saying, we're partners, and as partners, let's find what each of our strengths are, but let's also 
balance out the workload in the household and that we advocate for ourselves in that way, both with our partners as well as with our children. I talked to also so many women that are saying they're stressed out and they have so much to do and they have grown children that aren't doing anything to contribute to the household because they they don't want to rock the boat. And so that's some place that we can really bring in more equality and get more support at the home because the more support we have in our home life, the more that we're advocating for ourselves and calling in that place of we're partners here, we're a family here, we're all working together. This, the burden of taking care of the home does not fall on one person. That that will then allow women to show up more at work if they feel like the foundation at home is solid and that they're not putting in all of the work to keep the household going, but that they have deep support from everyone in the family. That makes me think of an OECD study that I saw a couple of years ago, and I can't remember what the letters stand for, but it's an organization of countries, and so they have access to data, aggregate data, from a number, I think it's 30 countries. And one of the things that was striking was that when they tallied up the number of hours that the members of a household worked in the office and at home, across the board, from the Scandinavian countries, which many think have a more socially advanced perspective and attitude toward women, all the way down to more conservative countries, the answer came, this was the same. Women were working more hours than men in all countries. I don't think there were any exceptions. And the question that the researchers asked was, was this self-imposed? Was there pressure from their peers or their husbands or their children or was this something that the women themselves was were driving? What do you think? I'm sure it's some of both. I'm sure it's some of both. And so I don't feel like we need to be like exactly 50-50, everybody splitting everything equally. But we do want to recognize, I mean, that's a really powerful study I hadn't heard of, that it's across the board every single country. And so we do want to take a look at our individual experience and say, how do I bring more balance here? Is there a place that there's unconscious actions being taken that we can now bring up to the surface and look at again? That's an important thing for us to do as women. And I think that as we start to look at some of these old structures, what we're going for is to be more at choice and more conscious of what our actions are and that we are finding as women balance in our home life and our work life, that we're creating space for ourselves. And that takes commitment. That's a, a big part of warrior goddess training is really teaching women, reminding women that we need to start committing to ourselves. So many of us commit to our partners, our children, our jobs, and we put ourselves last. 
or as one woman once said to me when she read the book, she said, I realized I didn't even put myself anywhere. I wasn't in the equation at all. And so this idea of committing to ourselves is bringing ourselves into the forefront, not in a selfish way at all, but a selfful way to realize that in order to be sustainable over time, you need to really support yourself, which means take time to rest, take time to do the things that you love, create space that's just for you, to commit to getting to know who you are now and what nourishes you the most. Just to follow up on the OECD, it stands for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and there are 35 member countries. So this was data from 35 countries. That, if my memory serves me right, across the board in all the countries that they had data, women were working more per hour, uh, sorry, per day, more hours per day in the home and at work than men. Just a very powerful study. Good information for women to know. And I think it's also perhaps a reminder to those of us who do that that we're not alone, that we're in really good company. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, we're in really good company. And again, it takes it then out of the individual, this is my fault or something I have to do into a more global realizing that as women right now, we're in a big paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift happens at the individual level. And that when we step back and can see we're part of something that's in transition, it makes it easier, I believe. One of the theories that I have come across says that our hormones are to blame because the hormones that rule women's bodies and by extension their minds drive women to make everyone in their lives a priority and as you said a moment ago in some instances where they don't even count themselves on the list of priorities they don't even appear and that as women age and their hormones change they start to prioritize themselves and sometimes receive the unfortunate descriptions um, that we see as women reach their menopause years. Do you think there's some truth to that? And if so, are there any ways to find a, a better balance? I think there's some truth to that. And if we follow that logic, that would mean that men biologically, because of their hormones, are going to be a certain way. And it's we have the capacity to use our higher brain function to work with what's going on hormonally inside of us. And so while par that's partially true, there's also ways that we can work with and, and I, as you were talking, what I recognized is that part of what we're dealing with is that we've cut off from our elders. And so when you have elders that have that point of view of a bigger picture, 
they would be able to bring that to the younger generation, to be able to share that wisdom and to be able to guide women. And so as we get to know more about the hormones, and it's true, they're incredibly powerful, and we can also choose how we want to be. And to use older women and their wisdom and what they've learned to help younger women to be more balanced, I think is really critical at this time. Do you have any techniques that you would care to share to help women who are feeling overstressed, to help bring some quiet to the chaos that is often our lives? Yeah, one of my favorite things is to begin to look in your life at where are there what I call gaps. So a gap is a time when you're in transition often. So you're driving to work or you're walking down the hallway to go to the bathroom or you're waiting in line for coffee. It's those in-between moments where there's space to do something different. What most of us do in those transition times is we're thinking ahead of what we need to do next or we're worrying about what we have did in the past. And you can make an incredible difference in your life simply by beginning to bring silence into the gaps, beginning to breathe and get quiet while you're waiting in line for coffee. So instead of pulling your phone out and checking your phone a million times or running through the list of what's coming up next, to just get quiet, breathe into your belly, soften, and just show up. And a great way to do this is to start playing with the senses to notice what colors are you seeing around you. How does your clothing feel against your skin? What smells are you perceiving? So if you tune into your senses and then go towards stillness, and it takes practice to learn how to do this, and you start to weave that throughout your life so that you're driving to work, you're attending to the stillness, you're getting quiet. While you're waiting to pick up your kids from school, get quiet. While you're walking from your boss's office to yours, go towards the stillness. That then creates more space and then actually makes us more targeted when we are then working because what I found over and over again is that when there's space when we've created space inside of ourselves we get better answers to problems we get different insights around how to take the next action and when we don't give ourselves that space we end up being in emergency mode all the time and when we're in emergency mode we're not seeing the biggest picture. We're just reacting. So it's incredibly supportive to start consciously looking for those gaps and then moving towards the stillness. And it'll, it takes practice. So know that it's not going to happen immediately, but it will integrate into your life as you make it a habit. And that makes me think about something that you mentioned in the book, perhaps an extension of that, 
which is meta or loving kindness. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a Buddhist practice, very simple, incredibly powerful. And in it, you start by finding the feeling sense in your body of a person that you appreciate or love. And so the first part of the practice is very easy. You call up someone you appreciate or love and love, and you feel yourself connecting to them. So you're finding that feeling sense in your body of love, compassion, acceptance. And you sit with that feeling. And then the next step is to then think about somebody that you are an acquaintance with, so you don't know that well. And to practice then calling up that same feeling of love and well-being in your, in your body when you're with an acquaintance. So this is a practice where you're using your imagination. And then the next step of the practice is to do it with yourself as one part of the practice is then calling yourself in. And can you bring that same sense of loving, acceptance, compassion to yourself. And one of the last parts of the practice is imagining someone you actively dislike and seeing if you can learn to hold love, acceptance, compassion, even with the people that you don't like. And people often say, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to hold love for someone I don't like? And it's because anytime you run negative energy towards someone else, you're running it through your body. So if I'm hating somebody else out there, I'm feeling, I'm eating that hatred. I'm feeling that in my body before it goes out. And my hatred isn't changing their behavior. So why not begin to gear ourselves towards feeling compassion towards others, knowing that they're acting out of their own stories and fears and history. So this concept of finding love, compassion, and happiness for yourself and others, do you think that it's applicable in the work environment? Absolutely. And study after study has shown that when people in a work environment feel content, when they feel happy, they are more productive, they're more creative, they're better team players, the entire company benefits. And so as we do our own personal work, it also spills over into our business life as well, and vice versa. If we're happy at work, then we're going to be more generous and loving towards our family. So they go hand in hand. Now, some people think that being compassionate and thoughtful of others means you're weak. What would you say to that? That's definitely a, a perception that people have, that if you're vulnerable, if you're compassionate, that you're going to be taking advantage of somehow that you're being innocent. And the truth is you can be compassionate and set boundaries. You can be kind and present and 
see when someone's not acting in your best interest. And I found that that it's actually more powerful. It's not a sign of weakness. It's incredible power to be vulnerable and to be compassionate. And that when we start to cultivate those skills inside of ourselves, and at first it can feel scary, that it becomes really our superpower. That those qualities are actually incredible strengths because they keep us deeply centered inside of ourselves and they allow us to show up with other people in a very present way. And I believe there's nothing stronger than a person that is centered in themselves and open-hearted and responding to a situation from a place of willingness to engage rather than a place of, I have to look this way or it needs to happen this way. Much more can happen in those situations. So being open to love, compassion, and happiness and being able to wish that on someone doesn't necessarily mean that you're willing to let someone run you over. Exactly. It has nothing to do with boundaries. And there's, there is confusion. If I'm a compassionate person, then I'm going, I, that means I have to let people do whatever they're going to do. And you can compassionately set a boundary. You can lovingly say no. And actually, your no is much more effective because you're fully behind it versus when we do just wrote, no, I'm not going to have that. I'm armored. I've watched women learn to step into saying no from an open place, setting a boundary while showing up fully, while holding their compassion, while holding their love. And it is breathtaking to see when women finally get that idea of, oh, I can still make a boundary and be compassionate because that's true power. As we're discussing this concept of making boundaries and warrior, as in the title of the book, one of the images that comes to mind, because it's just come out, is this movie that's just been released, this remake, because the character, of course, has been around for years, Wonder Woman. And there's a lot of criticism that she's been objectified in wearing the skimpy outfit. Um, but in fact, the actress who's playing Wonder Woman is apparently a military veteran from Israel. Is there a way to balance these images and these concepts, is there a place for this fictional character of Wonder Woman in the discussion that we're having? Absolutely. And, you know, the truth is change happens incrementally. So to have a pow very powerful female lead is incredibly beneficial for women, I believe. Would it have been lovely if she was not the stereotypical, gorgeous, you know, young, thin woman. Yeah, it wouldn't been, would have been great. And 
we we have to do things step by step is how I see it. And so it's a movement in the right direction because it gives children a role model and women a role model of what it means to be strong and compassionate because the way that they've portrayed Wonder Woman in the new movie is that she has tremendous amount of compassion that is then backed up by her strength and changes the course of the storyline. It's her compassion that really leads and changes everything. And we want to keep educating our daughters and ourselves to recognize that the images in media and the advertising are not representative of women, that there's a a definite stereotype of a woman should look a particular way that can cause women to judge themselves and dislike their bodies. And what I, I really tell women is that start paying attention less to the media and how the media is portraying how you should be and more to the actual, real, breathing, living women around you. And if you start attuning yourself to the women around you and what their bodies are like, what how their wrinkles are, how their body types are, you'll see that women are incredibly diverse and that it's very important for us to break out of the ways that we judge ourselves based in what the media is telling us we should be or what's what's held up as the image of beauty. If you look around, certainly in media, on television, the personalities that many people think of as the go-to aspirational roles, you see a lot of women who are wearing clothes because they make them look good, wearing heels that are bad for them because they think they need to look better, having plastic surgery after plastic surgery, beginning at a young age, spray painting on their faces. What does that say? What message does that give to young women, to daughters, aspiring women who want to move on in the world? What advice do you have in relation to those images? This is such an important topic because we've really trained ourselves as women to put our focus on the outside and what the outside looks like. And the invitation with where God is training is to bring our energy and our awareness on the inside, on what we feel like more than what we look like. And, you know, the media, especially advertising, if you look at advertising, there's one main message of advertising, and that message is you're not good enough. And if you just had this surgery or this type of tan or these high heels, then you would be better. Then you would be beautiful. You'd be loved. You'd be accepted. And it's so detrimental to us to keep striving on the outside to have a sense of being accepted or okay. So my recommendation for all women is that, you know, especially in relationship to our daughters, is that we educate them that the media the way that women are portrayed in the media is incredibly false. And in fact, what they're doing now is more, more, I think almost all the models at this point are photoshopped. So it's not even real women's bodies. It's women's bodies that have been photoshopped. 
So if you just go Google magazine models Photoshop, you'll start to see what's happening now, that it's not reality. And to recognize that it isn't true that women look this way, that you could even try to look this way. There's, you know, for example, Barbie, which was held up as you know, the perfect ideal women. I remember somebody once put real, like if they made Barbie a real woman, she wouldn't be able to stand up because of her configuration. So it's, it's not, it's an illusion that we can even attain that. And to teach young women that it's not about what they look on the outside, it's how they feel about themselves and how they choose to express themselves, what works for them. And so I'm not saying plastic surgery is bad or wearing high heels is bad. It's we want to come more and more into choice rather than just reactivity. I have to do this thing to keep up or to be accepted. What tips would you share with our listeners, Heather Ash, that they can take away with them to think about, to apply in their personal and business life based on the warrior goddess ideas? The first would be to start creating more quiet space in your life, looking for the gaps at both work and at home, practice going into stillness, and making a commitment to nourishing yourself. So that's one thing, because I feel like the silence is incredibly nourishing. So committing to nourish yourself by finding those gaps, those spaces, and bringing yourself into the present moment and asking yourself, how can I nourish myself? To then really start using your voice. Look for the places where you maybe are wanting other people to read your mind or are scared to speak up. And if you tend to withhold your voice, practice using it in little ways so that you can build yourself up. And support other women and find other women that support you in your growth. Create communities. Read books. Watch videos. Create support teams for yourself to help you to stay steady in becoming the woman that you are meant to be. In summary, create quiet space and make a commitment to nourish yourself. Number two, start using your voice in little ways to build yourself up. And number three, support other women and create communities that support you and other women. Beautiful, yes. Thank you, Heather Ash, for joining us from Harlem in New York. Thanks so much, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Heather Ash Amara, who discussed applying warrior goddess principles to your personal and business life. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.